There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. It's great to have you with us again today. Today's guest has had an extraordinary career as a public servant, corporate executive, and academician. He's a survivor in the truest sense of the word, having survived a horrific small plane crash that killed five people and severely injured his son and him. He's a former secretary of the Navy and a former administrator of NASA. He's with us for the entire podcast today. Sean O'Keefe, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks, Chris. Nice to be with you. I shared some of your bio, but for our listeners who may not know your entire background, Sean O'Keefe is a four-time presidential appointee, first as controller and CFO at the Defense Department, then as a deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget and deputy assistant to the president. Next, as Secretary of the Navy from 1992 to 1993, and finally, as Administrator of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA to us simple folks, from 2001 to 2004. He was a company officer and vice president at GE, and then was chairman and CEO of Airbus Group, which is the American division of the world's second largest aerospace corporation from 2009 to 2014. He has held faculty positions at Penn State and LSU, Today, he's a university professor in the Howard and Louise Fansteel Endowed Chair in Strategic Management and Leadership at my beloved alma mater, Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. Mr. Secretary, there are so many things we could talk about during your illustrious public career. Your time at NASA provides so many lessons in leadership, integrity, empowerment. I feel we're gonna spend most of our time uh, there today, but let's just dive in, and you'll pardon my pun, please. Someone around the start. Your dad was a naval officer on a nuclear submarine and served under the father of the nuclear Navy, Admiral Hyman Rockover. How did growing up in that environment shape who you are and the professional path that you chose? Well, it was a profound impact. My dad was a, a, a submarine engineering duty officer who was stationed on uh, more of the industrial facilities around the, the, the Defense Department, the Navy Department in particular. Uh, and around uh, Navy submarine operations bases, uh, which usually had a pretty strong contingent of Marines there as well. So I got a very strong dose of the Navy and Marine culture growing up throughout the course of my life. So it was an extraordinary experience. And it was every couple of years we packed up and moved somewhere else, and it turned out to be a great adventure. And the only place that was common was my folks were both born and raised uh, within a couple of blocks of each other in New Orleans, Louisiana. So that was home as far as I knew. <laughs> we always passed through there. I think I was 25 before I realized that all roads did not have to go through New Orleans. <laughs> you started your career as a budget analyst after getting your MPA at Syracuse University uh, in the Department of Navy. I'm sorry, no, it was uh, Loyola University, right? I apologize for that. And, uh, you know, I work in the financial services industry, and I still know people who run from the room in terror at the sight or thought of a spreadsheet. What did you like so much about numbers crunching that drew you to your, to your career in that? Well, it was a, uh, a realization, much as I was not a particularly um, uh, well-qualified financial uh, expert by any means at all coming out of grad school. 
But what I realized in the course of that time was this was the one area in any organization, it doesn't matter, public, private, you know, nonprofit, any kind of organization you can think of, that absolutely has an exposure of just about everything that that organization does. And so your awareness and depth of understanding of the totality of, of what the, the, the outcome, the mission, the strategy, all those things are of the organization is best uh, seen through the prism of that financial effort because I've yet to run into any organization that says, we don't need any resources at all. Don't worry, we're all set. <laughs> every, every one of them requires some uh, aspect of that in terms of the full range of definitions of what constitutes resources. And the financial resources are certainly uh, a major lever that works through that. Understanding decision process of how that gets uh, determined by from whatever organization it may be, that gives you a real good understanding of how decision making gets made, or at least is contributed to as you go through that process. And it's a, uh, a very illuminating uh, aspect of it, and one that I found in the earliest all the way up through the mid portion of my career as being a, uh, a primary you know, foundation of looking at the, the financial uh, aspects of any organization. So you start with the Department of Defense, you move to the Senate Appropriations Committee in the 1980s. And while you're there, you meet somebody our listeners may have known, uh, you connect a congressman from Wyoming named Dick Cheney. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to George H.W. Bush's administration, Cheney is now Secretary of Defense. He chooses you as the controller and CFO at the Defense Department. That had to be daunting. How do you prepare yourself for such a huge leap in responsibilities? Well, one of the great, great aspects of, of spending a, you know, nearly a decade on the Appropriations Committee staff was the privilege to work for and with Senator Ted Stevens, who was the chairman of the Defense Subcommittee during all of my tenure there, and ultimately I became his staff director on the committee which provided a tremendous uh, insight, interaction, constant coordination with the administration, with the Defense Department, with the National Security team uh, uh, across the the full expanse of that decision process. And it provided an awareness and depth of understanding of the national security agenda, and in turn, what the issues were, but inevitably in the course of every appropriations uh, year, the, uh, this was the one piece of legislation throughout the, the Congress that always had to move. An appropriations bill at the time that I served there always had to be enacted because failure to enact something meant that you were out of the capacity to actually obligate funds. So as a result, anything, every issue, every you know challenge, in addition to the financing issues, always got settled somehow <laughs> as a result of that uh, on an appropriation measure, whether it had policy implications or finance implications or whatever. And it was in the course of that that I got to know uh, then Congressman Cheney, uh, knew his reputation uh, from a legendary past that he had as chief of staff uh, to White House to President Ford. And, you know, it just he was steeped in a, a depth of understanding of the the entirety of the federal expanse. And it was in that kind of role that he was on the opposite side of the Capitol Hill from where I was, obviously. But always he was the point uh, of person who was a member who was assigned to come in with those policy issues that needed to be settled at the end. 
So I, I came to know him and his staff very well. And so as a result, I was not an unknown commodity uh, when he ultimately became the Secretary of Defense and was looking for filling out his team and invited me to be part of that. And I think that was a, in large measure because he knew Ted Stevens and he knew the depth of his understanding and uh, capacity to actually drive the national security agenda as well. So it was a, a good opportunity to really uh, uh, bring in uh, someone with with background in that particular area, but also in particular for me, it was a real extraordinary experience to, to work for a, a, a brilliant uh, strategist in the form of, Ted, of uh, Dick Cheney, who understood exactly the, the challenges we were confronting. So after that, President Bush appoints you to serve as the 69th Secretary of the Navy. How big of an honor was that for you? Well, it was, uh, it was, it was an extraordinary privilege, no question about it. It was an, it was an amazing honor that uh, the president would have that kind of confidence to, uh, to appoint me in the capacity. Uh, but it was kind of a mixed blessing in the sense that uh, uh, the circumstances surrounding this was the resignation of my predecessor and uh, a lot of controversy at the Navy Department at the time over a uh, uh, really extensive issue that had lingered for the better part of a year uh, that was a really early precursor of the, of the Me Too kind of movement. Uh, in which there really was a set of, of really uh, outlandish uh, uh, demonstrations and, and uh, acts of uh, sexual harassment, as well as uh, accusations of assault that had just lingered for the better end of a year. And so as a consequence, when my uh, predecessor resigned, um, I was appointed as a consequence of the fact that I had been currently in a capacity of having been an appointed official uh, at the Defense Department as the controller and CFO uh, of the Defense Department. And having been in that role for over three years, the determination was, he's handy. <laughs> we know where he lives. <laughs> he'll, he'll follow instructions well. And I, I, I like to think I didn't disappoint in that regard. So dealing with that high-profile scandal, what lessons did you learn there that would build on your experience and help you going forward? Uh, I guess the first one is that, that uh, anything that is a, uh, a major disruption in any organization uh, that really does occupy the attention, the focus, and the emotional uh, you know, capacity on the part of, of folks up and down the entirety of the organization uh, that are certainly the ones that are affected most profoundly, but others who are in leadership roles is that uh, that is a, a major focus of what is going to be an external issue that needs to be addressed and that absolutely must be confronted. And it speaks to the culture of the organization. But there's also you know, the, the, the day in and day out challenges of managing an enterprise of that size. You know, my first day in the job, I asked uh, Secretary Cheney at that time, I said, what's your guidance? And he said, well, I've got two things for you. So the first one is, know that you're now in charge of an organization of a million people across the globe, you know, Navy, Marines, and, and civilians engaged in all kinds of things in lots of different places, and know that at this moment, there is somebody doing something really stupid and it will now be your responsibility to go figure out why and to explain it and deal with it. So best of luck with that. 
<laughs> the second thing was mundane by comparison, but that would get my attention. It realized you know, I, I was very clear understanding of the fact that you're there in a role in which you are, you know, responsible for leading and managing through uh, issues that are disruptive by nature, but at the same time keeping everybody's eye on the ball of what the primary mission and focus is of the organization going forward such that it doesn't consume everybody's attention going forward and that there's enough trust and confidence that the leadership will deal with it. So that's, that's a primary feature of that. The other part is, is, is to, um, in many ways, you know, trust your instincts. There is a um, you know, set of challenges that are going to emerge in these kind of situations that really do require uh, an immediate kind of reaction to them. And it, it, you'll never have all the information you need in order to act in a way that is complete in that case. And so be sure that what you're, which, how you're acting to this is one that in turn uh, is open enough to be informed by developments as they occur to continue to refine that decision. And that takes a little bit of a, uh, a calibration of what, what is involved. And then, I, again, from the instinct standpoint, it's a matter of just relying on the values and principles you learned getting to that stage. And know that there's an inviolate proposition of what cannot be passed, what can't, a line that can't be crossed, and always know where your true north is in making those kinds of decisions. And in those cases, you never have to look back and wonder whether you made the right decision, just whether or not you were true to yourself in doing it to the best of your ability going forward. Next, you're appointed NASA administrator, where you were initially viewed as a bean counter rather than a space enthusiast and agency cheerleader. You were there to get control of the International Space Station's $4.8 billion cost overruns. For listeners who find themselves as an outsider coming in to fix a problem, you're usually not going to be welcomed with open arms. How should they approach the situation so they are as effective as possible? Well, I guess the, the, this, this was not a new uh, reaction. I had the same one going in and at the, uh, as a Navy secretary was an awful lot of folks just you know, said, what, what are we doing now with this <laughs> you know, financial weenie who's coming in <laughs> who doesn't know anything about operating uh, programs. And, and the reality is, which you, you step up and say, look, I, I don't know your job better than you do. I'm never going to pretend that I know your job better than you do. Uh, but instead, I want, to, I want you to understand that I'm going to have absolute, complete confidence in you to perform in that regard, or we're going to have something we're going to need to deal with. And that was true at NASA as well. I mean, the, the approach that was taken there is uh, I, I early on said, look, I have absolutely no notion whatsoever and no illusions that I could be the chief engineer, the chief scientist, the chief technologist, the best astronaut, <laughs> you know, none of that. None of those things I would ever be qualified to, or selected to do. But having a, a, an instinct and an understanding and a knowledge and experience of having brought together disparate communities to work together to an outcome, is something I do know something about. And so in that regard, this is an opportunity where we've really got to deal with complex systems integration kinds of issues. 
And that is all about how you pull all the, the individual pieces together to make the sum of the parts substantially greater than any one of them would be. And um, I, everybody took a leap of faith on that for a while <laughs> and understood it. But the immediate uh, test of that was to deal with the overrun. Because as soon as you know the new administration had come in, I was on the White House staff for the first year of the Bush administration. Uh, in 2001 as the deputy director at OMB in that role. And it was uh, very apparent that the, the nearly $5 billion overrun on a global collaborative program for which all the partners were uh, contributing resources was one that was gaining the attention of you know, the secretary of state, the president himself, as a consequence of heads of state and foreign ministers coming in and saying, why am I receiving a bill for an overrun? I thought this was something we had agreed to how this would be handled. Uh, and so this was a, a, a circumstance where the president's view was this is a management problem. And so therefore I'm gonna put a financial manager, someone who has a background in the whole field into the job to run the agency. That gave me a rather significant uh, standing, I guess, by virtue of uh, that, his articulation of precisely what the objective was and, and an immediate burning platform that everybody knew had to be addressed and working that through, not just as a financial issue, but as, as one that was, a, again, complex systems engineering challenge and coordinating this with 18 different nation states who were all part of the same enterprise to agree to what a configuration would look like that we were prepared to support and to, to finance. You had a number of challenges at NASA, but without a doubt, the most difficult one came on the morning of February 1st, 2003, the tragic loss of Space Shuttle Columbia. We spent a lot of time talking about numbers and leadership, but let's talk about the importance of care and compassion for others. In the fleeting minutes between you realizing that Columbia had been lost and others beginning to comprehend that, you acted swiftly to spare the flight crew's family from the same glaring spotlight that the Challenger crew's families endured when they exploded before their eyes in 1986. It's difficult sometimes to know how or if to show compassion for others in the workplace, especially these days. How do you recognize when to act or even how to act in moments large and small like that? Well, it's, uh, the, the events that day are ones that are you know, seared in my memory forever. Uh, it was... Um, had been at the agency for not quite a year and a half at that point. We worked our way through the previous you know, program management challenge that I mentioned here before with the International Space Station. And you know, on that day, we were really um, pretty buoyant because it was the opening chapter of where we were going with uh, really a, a revised agenda and a focus and a concentration of you now you know, writing the ship and moving forward. Uh, and it was a historic mission in that, you know, among the seven remarkable people who were members of the crew, one of which, Ivan Ramon, was the first Israeli astronaut. So the world's attention was on this event. Um, and so that morning, having gotten to know the families of all the crew members in, in the time well before that, I was there for the launch of Columbia two weeks earlier of the, the mission itself and had gotten to know everybody very well by that stage. 
So we were all together again in, in Florida, anxiously awaiting and very upbeat uh, about what was a very, very successful mission over that previous two weeks. It was due to return that morning of the 1st of February. And um, so standing there in the, in the stands at the landing strip, if you will, of the Kennedy Space Center, uh, waiting for the shuttle to return was uh, a moment that went from uh, absolute you know, delight and anxious anticipation of seeing the successful crew members return uh, with their families, and then kind of a pause in which we realized that nothing was happening. There was no, all the events that normally lead up to a landing didn't occur. And then a dawning realization that this was certainly a, a, a likely circumstance where catastrophe had struck, had struck. So I watched the, and then worked with the families as they went from elation to complete despair in a span of minutes. Um, recognizing that, and among the lessons learned from the challenger events all those years before, one of the things I'd learned was to really avoid having the families exposed to the uh, just the, the media interests and so forth of trying to calibrate their reaction and all that. And there were plenty of media there. Yes, it was a, this was a global event that was really attended and watched by, by many of the outlets. So the first move instinctively was to uh, immediately vacate and evacuate the families, if you will, uh, back to the crew quarters at the Kennedy Space Center so that they could have an opportunity to reflect on their own and just and, uh, to, to, uh, just realize having what it was. And it was about a half an hour afterwards that I uh, was able to speak to the president to, to apprise him of what we knew at the time, which was not a whole lot, but I, you know, enough to know that Columbia was not returning, and we were starting to piece together all the the, uh, the observations made. And his very first question, his very first question, uh, as soon as I gave him the thumbnail sketch of where we were, he said, where are the families? And that, that sent a message back to me powerfully that said, that ought to be your priority. It was at the first instance as a matter of instinct. It clearly was his. And so that ought to be the continuing focus that we think of all the time and with great regularity. Uh, so it, it, uh, that shaped an awful lot. I mean, his, his instinct on this was quite good. He spoke to them uh, himself uh, about an hour or so later. I had a chance to, to, uh, to mourn with them, to, uh, you know, to console uh, them from the distance that he was you know, at that time. While he was in, in, uh, in Washington on that day, but at the same time, they understood that he obviously uh, emoted a level of compassion that was was a clear best example that I could ever have hoped for. Uh, in the course of that time, he made it a point at uh, on several occasions to include the very last. Um, funeral of the last of the seven astronauts who were interred at, at Arlington National Cemetery to have all the families to the White House. And he and the First Lady spent um, 
what the families thought was going to be a, a half an hour of, of uh, you know, uh, conversation and, and really just kind of working with them to, to reconcile to where this was. Two hours later, <laughs> he was still, you know, engaged with them. And, and I thought that's the power of, of example is, is, a, is a strong one. And George W. Bush and the First Lady were absolutely uh, uh, the best I could possibly have imagined to set that kind of example of how we all want to be. Uh, so it was a, being led well is one of the things you hope for in life. And I certainly was. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back for the second part of our conversation with Sean O'Keefe. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in to The James Dentley Show and learn strategies for success in business and in life. Dr. James Dentley is a proven success coach who knows how to convert good into great. You'll find out from the achievers and leaders how they got to be the success stories that they are. And Dr. Dentley and his guests will give you the tools you need to follow in their footsteps. It's time to become the best version of you. Listen to The James Dentley Show, Fridays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Empowerment. If you are ready to be inspired, energized, and entertained, you've come to the right place with our two life-changing programs at BeTheStarYouAreRadio.com. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listen for our lifestyle show, Star Style, Be The Star You Are, with our host, Cynthia Bryan. Then on Sundays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, Teens Talk and the World Listens on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Play with with us at be the star you are radio.com and the voice america empowerment channel are you looking for life's answers how about the meaning of true self can you really be a better person overnight well good luck with that now if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead tune into dr gary bell's absurd psychology you'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions some common sense heck you might just actually learn something listen tuesdays at 11 a.m pacific 2 p.m eastern on voice america empowerment you have the power to be stronger live fearlessly and enjoy the benefits of a great life Listen for Fearlessly Authentic with host Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody has proven at an age when many start to slow down that she is just getting started. With two grown daughters, a successful business that she started at 50, a finalist in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, and a two-time world bikini champion, she's ready to take you to the next level in your life. Fearlessly Authentic airs Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 
1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with Sean O'Keefe, former Navy Secretary and NASA Administrator. Mr. Secretary, one account I've read describes the Columbia disaster as having seared O'Keefe to the core, while noting that you handled the crisis with a rare blend of strength and compassion. It also said the incident opened a window of opportunity for change at NASA. How is it possible for moments of great tragedy or stress even to not only move forward, but to really move forward in a, in a huge positive way? Well, in, in any moment of, of extraordinary um, disruptive change in which the, the habits and behaviors and daily routine of all of us is altered, uh, that presents a extraordinary moment in which everything is negotiable. There are a number of different uh, factors that uh, suddenly make uh, folks very receptive to, to uh, considering different ways of looking at things and alternatives and so forth. Um, and it's just a matter of, of being very selective and understanding, you know, first and foremost, what's the objective you're trying to achieve, where you're trying to go. In the post-Columbia environment, it became very evident after a multitude of very helpful congressional hearings, and I can imagine you can visualize what that helpfulness was, uh, that nonetheless brought home the proposition that there was you know, looming skepticism within the, the uh, elected overseers of the, you know, the people of the United States, that uh, uh, there was skepticism as to whether or not the agency was up for the kinds of challenges and exploration and risk that that takes uh, to pursue the very agenda of what started that legendary agency back in 1958. Uh, and in so many ways, that, that became a, a focal point, an opportunity to, again, first and foremost, uh, remind everyone in the agency that our first uh, responsibility ought to be uh, to those who dedicated themselves to this extraordinary venture of exploration uh, and lost their lives because of what we did or didn't do. And so getting through the investigation of that whole process, how that went wrong, uh, understanding exactly where we failed to be uh, as diligent in the processes we needed to be to assure those kinds of high risk kind of ventures going forward uh, was a major objective as a, as a, a testimonial and at least in, in memory of those who gave their lives in the course of that, but also as a, as a mechanism of reconciliation to enclosure to all the families whose, whose lives were changed immediately upon that event. So that became the first thing. How do we restore, how do we reestablish and, and really set standards for what the um, safety culture of that agency had always been at the same time that it was taking high risk ventures? It, it was able to, to balance both 
Uh, and that's a real trick. It's a, a matter of fact, an amazing feat to try to figure out exactly how to do that properly that parses that uh, risk determination relative to the to the uh, the objective overall, and yet at the same time not be deterred from taking those risks and going forward. Because after all, what an agency like NASA was always founded to do was to you know tackle things and issues and opportunities for which no one else had even tried <laughs> and much less been successful at. And so as a consequence, this is, you're always going to be venturing into that which you don't know is going to hurt you if you're not careful. So that, that became a restoration of that focus of being concentrated on that uh, activity. But at the same time, there was also a, that opens up another window that says, and to what end? What is the objective? What are we trying to really accomplish with all? And so let's be clear and straightforward, transparent in the minds of all of the professionals that are part of the agency, but also to everybody externally, the American people that are making this possible, that here are the reasons why we're doing these things. This is what the objective is. This is the focus we're after. And so it was an opportunity to, to affirm and very clearly establish what the mission and objective of the agency is all about rather than a collection of you know, 20,000 unbelievably talented, professional, and technically qualified, imaginative engineers, scientists, and tech technologists, all basically flying as if they were wild geese, you know, accidentally flying in formation. No, the idea is to instead you know, focus on what is the specific objective that we're all after, and then we can all pick up an oar and make that happen because of that application of all those talents and skills that only this agency can do. And that, uh, that became a focal point. It became an opportunity to mobilize um, the, the culture of the workforce to be recognizing constantly that the risk that is being taken is higher than anything else that any other discipline or profession would normally do. And at the same time, we're doing things to great effect and to great end uh, and to achievement that once they are uh, you know, accomplished is really quite remarkable. I, it is in some of that, it, it, it made for an experience that I realized the highs were really high. When we, won, when we were successful, it was extraordinary because it was the first time it had been done. And the lows were really low. When it went wrong, it went deadly wrong. And so trying to reconcile those two you know, emotional standards that then captures itself into a, a very clear strategic mission objective of what you're after uh, was the primary call. And the Columbia tragedy was a catalyst for exactly that kind of rediscovery. Someone once joked that crises just seem to follow you. It was after your time in public service when you became the chancellor of Louisiana State University with an agenda to lead LSU back among the top-ranked schools in the country, only to be forced to respond to Hurricane Katrina. Thousands upon thousands of New Orleans residents sought refuge on the LSU campus because it was said to be the only functioning public institution within about a 200-mile radius. Your basketball arena was turned into a makeshift hospital so that about 35,000 people could be treated in the span of about six to eight weeks. And yet... You accomplished your objectives and successfully handled that crisis. What is your process, or really your, your secret, if you will, 
for prioritizing objectives and then getting them done. No, it's, uh, it, it was, I, I started to think about that pattern myself and uh, began to really worry. <laughs> this was something that was certainly uh, uh, becoming part of who I'm all about, I guess. I don't know. So this is, this is an expertise in dealing with crisis management that I never sought to acquire and would rather go back and never have to do it. So it, there is no, no pride in any of this. But I guess the, the couple of fundamentals that always come through, and this one was no exception, was a, a, a first and foremost realizing that the initial information you're going to get is likely either incomplete or just dead wrong. And so avoidance of, of acting impetuously, but at the same time acting decisively on what it is you can confirm, you know, is an imperative. And striking that balance is absolutely essential. This is a variant of what we talked about in an earlier point. But it is nonetheless a, an important one in this case. When this comes up rapidly, you've got to be able to do that. Number two, once you put together the fundamentals of, of how you're going to respond to something like this, and it was, again, seeing a, the diaspora that was retreating, you know, fleeing from New Orleans uh, as a consequence of the flooding that had occurred and the heat and everything else. Thousands of people, you know, traversing through Baton Rouge, uh, the only place that had lights on and operational and, you know, could do anything was the Louisiana State University. We had a cogeneration facility on campus that provided most of the power. Everything else was out for about a 250-mile radius. So it gravitated in, and there it was. We had a fundamental, um, uh, I guess, capacity or, or, and requirement under the state uh, emergency preparedness provisions to be ready to accommodate something on the order of, I remember right, 50 to 75 folks from nursing homes or uh, minimally attended you know, care facility. Um, that in the event of an evacuation, can you put them up at the, at the university? That in turn created the opportunity to scale that up to thousands by instead of using one portion of a, of a, of a building that you would designate on campus for that purpose, instead closing down the basketball arena, taking up the parquet floor and putting down a thousand cots. You know? And we were not, at any loss for the sheer volume of medical professionals is all the hospitals were shut down. So as a result, they all came to, to LSU uh, with the opportunity to say, this is something we, you know, as an immediate thing we need to treat and deal with. And so thousands upon thousands of folks came through the Pete Maravich Assembly Center, you know, the basketball arena to be treated. And it was a, um, uh, an opportunity just to kind of establish the largest mass unit you've ever seen in a span of about 48 hours at the most. So it, it was focusing on that as objective, saying, what is it we can do that's going to be extreme you know, value added? That's an important thing to do. But in addition to that, you know, thousands of students coming out of, out of universities that closed down in New Orleans were a week into the semester and wanted, you know, how do I avoid losing the entirety of the semester? And coming on to campus and saying, is there any way can enroll? Thousands of them. And so the answer was, you bet. Everybody that's at any other university, you are immediately enrolled. 
and let's go figure out how to, you know, how to deal with all that. And to facilitate all that, I mean, the most important point, I would say, to make all that work, you can articulate all the goals and objectives, lay them out, but you got to also follow through and empower people to go do it. And so every time there was a, 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 any kind of a, a regular daily, you know, many times a day kind of meeting in which we were looking at inventorying what the conditions were at the time, folks would say, well, we're waiting for direction on this. I said, wait a minute, uh, look in the mirror, you're the direction now, okay? <laughs> this is your opportunity. You see what's going on here. You're in the best position to respond to it. On that part of the problem you're talking about, you get the authority right now to go fix it and go deal with it in a way you see fit because you know more about it than anybody else does. Have at it, and you're in charge. You're on that. And it, it, that level of empowerment, if you will, is born in part of necessity, but it also is born of an opportunity to really uh, utilize a remarkable capacity you have of people who are the closest to the problem are going to be the ones with the the clearest understanding of what the solutions need to be. Absolutely incredible. You know, a lot of people tend to make decisions based on emotions. And early in our show, you mentioned instinct. You know, trust your gut is something we hear often. As a professor of strategic management, can you make the case for why more people should pursue that discipline and how we can make more of our decisions based on strategy rather than emotion? It's uh, a very good question. I think it, it, it starts with First and foremost, everybody in the organization understanding what is the purpose of what we do? What is the organization all about? If we weren't here, what would be deficient? What wouldn't be going on? And once you can establish a sense of community, of a purpose, a mission, that everybody can feel like they're all part of that, then the rest flows from that as a bunch of strategic objectives that can be established based on trade-offs and understandings of what's your core competence and where you are going to put your resources and what's the greatest game, what's the you know uh, you know cost return uh, that will occur as a result of the, the value and added from every one of the things you could do. And I think it's a, uh, it has to begin, though, with that sense of everyone feeling like I have a part in something that's bigger than I am. And once I understand that that's where this fits and that I'm integral to that, that if I don't do my job, it will be less than it needs to be in terms of its quality, effectiveness, utility, whatever. That's, that's a, 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 you know, a strategic focus that can be established in almost any organization I've ever found is making sure that people understand it, it, that this isn't an option for you not to do what it is you're capable of doing to advance this objective. And if for whatever reason you don't or can't or don't want to, then we really do need to find something else for you to do. You know? <laughs> and, that's, and that becomes part of the leadership challenge as well. It's, you know, those who are, you know, that you, that you need to accomplish the task uh, and who are motivated and empowered to do so uh, can do some remarkable things. Speaking of trust, as a four-time presidential appointee, it's clear that presidents trust you. Being able to instill trust among others in you is certainly an important step to self-empowerment in its best sense. What's the best way to go about developing trust? Well, I, I, 
There are a multitude of different factors, but there's only one that overrides every other. And that is your integrity is the most important thing you have. And once you compromise on that and potentially lose it, that's never restored. And so as a consequence, it's something to be that only each of us have. How we define what our integrity is, what it's, what, how it's derived, it is the greatest strength you bring to any occasion. And from that, if you constantly consult that true north proposition, <laughs> that's what it's all about and what you stand for and what your principles are, what your values are, and they're very clear in your mind. There are folks around you, particularly the leadership that you serve, work for, work with, uh, come to realize this is someone I can at least trust they're doing what they believe is the right way to do this. And to the extent that proves to be deficient, it won't be for lack of commitment to accomplishing that. Uh, that takes you a good long way. And it, it really does, uh, uh, again, it's not, it, it's, it's not hard to follow through on if you, if you can clearly establish in your mind, what are those values? What are those basic fundamentals that then comprise what it, your integrity is? And it's, it, it, again, anytime there's a compromise to that in which um, uh, you perceive to have uh, Worse yet, worse of anything, lied about something. Uh, from that point forward, <laughs> good luck ever trying to recover that reputation ever again. And it's a uh, it's astounding the number of people who uh, unfortunately lose that. Uh, that in turn are wondering why that happened to them. <laughs> you know, it's real basic. I mean, we all have this instinct. We all have the same understanding. But, gee, I don't know if I can trust that person. Or, yes, I know I can trust that person. And that's um, that, that in turn opens up an opportunity for much greater uh, dialogue thereafter. And as well as um, responsibility that comes with that uh, and the opportunities that flow from that as well. Let's talk about adversity and courage in the face of a tragedy that was very, very painful for you, both emotionally and physically that many of our, our listeners might not know about. On August 9th, 2010, you were on a fishing trip in Alaska with friends and one of your sons and the plane you were in crashed. Five people, including former Alaska U.S. Senator Ted Stevens, were killed. You were badly injured with a broken neck, broken ankle, and internal injuries. Yet your biggest concern in the first half hour, which must have seemed like an eternity, was that your son, Kevin, had been killed. What drives someone to find the strength to go on in those moments? Again, a, a moment that, uh, again, much like so many I've referred to here, this one really is the seminal moment that I uh, had probably more of a profound effect on me than almost anything else. Um, my mentor, my friend, the guy who had in so many ways entrusted me in the earliest phases of my career with lots of responsibility, Ted Stevens um, did not survive. And it was very clear to me within moments after this happened that that was true. 
and it was uh, you know, just immediate. It was not a prolonged, uh, you know, determination there. But nonetheless, you know, so much of, of what he stood for and uh, the remarkable man that he was um, and what he meant to me was in part um, focused my attention. The reason it was so much so was he was sitting right next to me. Uh, my son was in the co-pilot seat in the front of the, the, uh, the aircraft. And it was when I, after a moment, looked up and realized that he was slumped over in the co-pilot seat that it did uh, then completely um, disorient everything. The very idea that, that uh, he had passed was just not something I could I deal with, and unfortunately was not able to move his sheer amount of the wreckage that was penning me down uh, prohibited me from reaching much further than the length of my arm. Uh, but after a bit, uh, he gradually, you know, regained consciousness, came to, and realized he'd been realized he'd been knocked out rather than perished in the event. And it was that moment uh, I, I thought this this is a whole different situation. Now we've got to focus on how do you get out of here? <laughs> you know, how do we how do we dig ourselves out of this uh, and start? thinking through all the things that we could do to improve that. But it was a, a, a point of complete despair in that time before I realized, before it was evident that he was, he was alive. Uh, and thank God that, that uh, sorted its way out. There were four of us who survived, two of us related. The odds on that were about as far afield as anything we should have, you know, could have imagined. And surviving as a, position at the, in the co-pilot seat was the farthest thing that, you know, the probabilities were just off the charts of being so low. And yet that was enough to indicate to me, this, this is, we've got, a, we've got a chance to move out of this. Having survived through that, there's a lot more to come and a lot of other problems we have to deal with just to get out of this situation. But at least we were going to be able to do it together. And that, uh, that emboldened me to to think expansively, let's put it that way. <laughs> After all you've done in your career, you've said that your current job as professor at Syracuse is your dream job. As someone who spent four years as an undergrad there and have gone to the winters, how can you say that? How so? No, it's just, a, it's, I went to grad school here at Syracuse. and uh, I've been on the faculty here once before between public service uh, opportunities. Uh, and so this was, you know, my my friends, my my friends, say, yeah, this is your third time back, and we're going to keep doing this till you get it right. <laughs> so, but it's this is the uh, school for anyone who aspires to to really wanting to engage in public service and do so meaningfully, to manage challenges, work through issues, lead people, and. And do things down the road. Boy, it was the best preparation I could have ever had. So this was a rare opportunity to actually pay it forward, if you will, uh, in, in the context of how much I got out of it. To try to even give a, a, a very small measure of that same amount to the best of my ability, 
to those coming ahead. And it's a, uh, uh, it's folks who are always impassioned about the, about public service and the opportunity to, to really learn the fundamentals of administration, management, and leadership kinds of uh, challenges and know how to conquer them uh, as best they can that uh, really does uh, immediately get past the first you know, condition, which is how do you motivate everybody? No problem. You're already preaching to the converted. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an opportunity to really kind of ratchet the dialogue up substantially about that and to delve into uh, much deeper areas. Plus the idea of being a faculty member, this is um, one of those, these are rare jobs where you have, you know, a number of things you must do, like show up and be part of it you know, and absolutely uh, dedicate yourself to it. But beyond that, you get to do the things you really like doing. And for the things you're not as fond of, well, you don't need to put those on your list nearly as much. And uh, you have the discretion to do so. Uh, my biggest failing is that uh, there are so many things I find attractive about this that I overload the cart <laughs> on things that I like to do. And that usually consumes uh, you know, all of my day and then some. So it's a, it's, it's a great experience, but most of all, it's the opportunity to really engage with those who are really excited about wanting to make a difference in, in public service and do it right and do it, do it in a way that's going to be uh, uh, real value added. And I find that to be just exhilarating to work with folks with that level of uh, commitment. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the show, it's my beloved alma mater as well. So I appreciate the uh, shameless and gratuitous plug for that. So thank you, Sean. <laughs> my pleasure entirely Sean O'Keefe thanks so much for being with us today truly appreciate your time well thank you Chris this has been a real pleasure I, it's always a pleasure to, to work with you and to spend time with you and I thank you for uh, the opportunity to be with you no thank you and thank you for tuning in to Next Steps Forward I'm Chris Meek be sure to tell your friends and family that we'll be back next Tuesday same time same place with another leader from the world of business politics sports or entertainment until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.